Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. On the show this week, the pensions regulator has dissented from any suggestion that the uh, industry's dissatisfaction with its single code of practice and the consultation into it means that the code itself is in trouble. Uh, despite an interim response announcing that the uh, proposed rules around illiquid investments are to be scrapped and the requirement for an own risk assessment to be carried out annually may longer be, uh, the code is not in trouble. It is merely, as our headline uh, now reflects, to be amended. Uh, we'll ask what amendments are necessary and whether this kerfuffle could have been avoided. Next up, third wave type solutions have uh, historically from Mussolini to Tony Blair not been overwhelmingly successful on all fronts. Uh, Mussolini had Ethiopia and Blair had PFI and some might even say Iraq, but will the pensions industry's own third way solution be more successful? We have collected defined contribution schemes. They are around the proverbial corner. Royal Mail's CDC scheme is expected in 2022. We'll ask whether the industry is sufficiently prepared for them or whether there is still a risk of an expensive, bloody and embarrassing retreat to follow her many years later. And then finally, LCP reminds us that traditional scheme models are not without their benefits. A report from the consultancy argues that savers needn't transfer out of defined benefit schemes in search of more flexibility, as this can be achieved within DB by, for example, a pensions increase exchange or a bridging pension option. Uh, we'll limber up ourselves and explore this in a little more detail. I'm Benjamin Mercer. I'm a reporter at Pensions Expert. Joining me today are Stephen Taylor, partner at LCP, and Tim Middleton, director of policy and external affairs at the Pensions Management Institute. And thank you both very much for joining me. And we will kick off with the single code. So um, it's not in trouble, as mentioned. As everybody knows, it was supposed to bring 10 of the 15 existing codes into one manageable, user-friendly modular document. But it did also add an awful lot of new information around climate change, cybersecurity, investment, administration, and remuneration policies. And one of these rules, the 80% or 20% rule about schemes holding more than 20% of their assets in unregulated investments is going to be scrapped after the industry complained about the effect this would have on illiquid investments in particular. Uh, the fate of the own risk assessment, as mentioned, is also uh, uncertain. So I'll begin with Tim, I think, if you don't mind. I believe, I, mean, I think in our article on this, originally you warned against certainly the way in which the, the, the unregulated investments aspect was consulted on and being part of this wider yes. consultation. It wasn't just so much what was done, it was also the manner in which it was done. This was sneaked in um, as, a, as a new rule, uh, along with all of the uh, consolidation of the existing codes of practice. And there was some discontent amongst the industry as a whole about the way that that was done. Uh, it's one thing to consolidate the existing codes of practice. We knew what was in there already. But when things like this are surreptitiously introduced uh, as part of the new code of practice, it did cause a degree of irritation and people weren't at all happy about it, quite understandably so. Some context, it's, it's worth remembering that this was an enormous consultation exercise that was put out at a particularly awkward time of year and uh, we weren't given a great deal of time to respond to it. So there was a sense of uh, this being fait accompli, essentially, uh, and that we had this whole thing just dumped on us a very short notice and without much scope to make a meaningful response to it. So that got things off to a bad start, I must say. It certainly sounds that way. If somebody at the SPP warned, I think, because although it's as you say, everyone was complaining about this consultation when it dropped and someone at the SPP said it will lead to flawed and costly implementation. I do hope they're now sitting back with a glass of whiskey, sort of feeling very smug about themselves, because it does seem to have led to that, in fact. Stephen, do you want to come in here? As I understand it, one of the, the problems, not with the consultation, but with the proposal itself, was that this rule on unregulated investments, for instance, was seen to go against the government's broader drive to encourage more 
investment in, for instance, illiquids. And, and that was one of the complaints. There were many complaints leveled, but I think, as I recall, that was one of them. Given that that, that, that is the government's stated intent, why did the uh, proposal even include this this measure, do you think? I, I think this is one of those unintended consequences uh, points. I mean, I think if you think about what the aims they were trying to regulate, trying to achieve, I think quite laudable aims of trying to make sure that schemes are not taking unnecessary risks in terms of terms of their liquidity, for example. And I think what perhaps didn't occur in the initial drafting was that some of our larger schemes would be caught up in their schemes that actually have been quite sort of complex and well thought through structures that suddenly found that actually um, if they have some 20 percent or more sort of illiquids are, are they caught up in it so i guess this is uh, terms of sort of talked about in terms of how much time there was sort of drafting um the draft perhaps it's one of those things that with a little bit more time could have been ironed out earlier and obviously now now he's being ironed out and I think in their interim response the regulator has said well whilst we still have the same aims we're going to come back with a slightly different form of words and hopefully it'll be a bit bit better. And Tim do you want to come back on on this point is it just the way in which the consultation was done which which allowed this sort of oversight to occur and of course the, the drafting as Stephen has just mentioned would it have been solved if for example they had a separate consultation into the new areas they were proposing to add to the code? That would have been certainly preferable. Because of the way it was done, it did rather look as if it was being sneaked in amongst the the rest of the consultation. And as a general point of principle, it would be clearly better if they'd consulted on this separately. We did say that looking at the sheer volume of single code, would it not have been better for them to have tried to chunk the thing and uh, consult on it, the different aspects of it separately over a wider period of time? But certainly, when it comes to the introduction of anything that's completely new, to have um, done this in the way that they did, did cause a great deal of concern. And it would have been a lot better, infinitely preferable, if they consulted on this separately. The, the other part of the interim response mentioned that this, this own risk assessment, which is ironically itself now at risk, partly because uh, the industry complained about the workload that would have been required. I think in the TPR was proposing to go above the, the actual regulatory requirement from the, the IOP 2 one to have it as an annual report rather than, I believe it was triennial is the minimum requirement. And this was it was pointed out this would make small schemes in particular have an awful lot of work to do. And now they've said, as I recall, that they will review that particular measure. Stephen, is this the kind of thing that, that will always create a huge amount of work? And it's actually just about what is the appropriate amount of work to foist upon small schemes? Or was the was the idea a bit sort of too strict from the off? It certainly looks like it's going to create a lot of work, particularly for those smaller schemes. I think the regulators have always talked about, you know, schemes need to be doing the appropriate level of work for themselves. Obviously, there is a minimum amount of work that the own risk assessment was always going to create. And I, and I completely agree that as initially drafted, it does look like that for small schemes in particular, it does look quite onerous. I think the challenge going forward is going to be how do you get those necessary controls? I mean, they're, again, they're, they're completely reasonable things that schemes should be looking at. Well, they should understand their, their sort of governance structures and the risks they're taking and how they can better manage them and get that sort of feedback process to improve things going forward. But it's just a question of doing something that's not going to be too onerous for those smaller schemes, but does actually retain the value because there is value there. Is it a little bit odd? I mean, from my perspective, as a you know occasional observer of these kind of things, on, on the one hand, you will get the government quite often saying that actually part of the value for money test that it wants schemes to do, you know, in order to prove that they shouldn't or they wouldn't benefit from consolidation, is the amount of work that the new regulations 
impose on them. And actually imposing more work on them can in fact create an argument for consolidation. But then when something like this comes along, which imposes a lot of work on them and everyone complains about the work, they back down and say, no, we're not going to do it after all. Is is that an unfair passing of this? Or is there a fine middle ground that's maybe not been sketched out between the amount of work that is appropriate for small schemes to do and the amount of work that is deliberately inappropriate for them to do, which should prompt them, nudge them towards consolidation. Tim, do you want to, to tackle that one first? Well, it's uh, a difficult one to take on. I mean, it's, certainly it's been a long-standing concern of the regulator that smaller schemes, by virtue of the fact that they have limited resources, tend to be rather more poorly run than larger schemes. So that's it's inevitable. So trying to up the workload is always going to increase the administrative burden, the admin costs of governing, you know, effective governance is always going to be more problematic for a small scheme uh, if you're going to have to do something like an own risk assessment on such a regular basis. So I think probably the, the regulator is maintaining it, you know, the same course that it's had over the last few years that schemes can either demonstrate that uh, they can do quite complicated governance, that they can show that they can be well run, or they should consolidate into larger arrangements. There's more scope for them to do that now, DB schemes. And I think it's probably, as a broad principle, it's not an unreasonable position to take. The question is just how much arm twisting is, is reasonable in terms of what you're expecting them to do. Well, well, we'll move on, I think, from the single code in that case to uh, something new coming down the line, CDC. As mentioned, Royal Mail CDC scheme is expected in uh, 2022. The Pension Schemes Act introduced an authorization and supervision regime, and the DWP has consulted on the precise regulations governing uh, CDC, uh, from all of which we would suppose the regulators expect a few of them to pop up in the next uh, few years. So it has been pointed out that scale will be one of the key determiners of the model's success. Stephen, if I kick off with you on this one, I mean, I understand there are slight variations on there in sort of the different definitions of CDC, but there is a broad underlying theme, which is you know, commonality to all of them. What is that for a layman? What's the basic idea here? And what's the appeal of it? And now in particular, why CDC and then why at the moment? Well, what we're looking at with CDC is this attempt to create a third way, a bit of a middle ground between DB and DC that from the member's perspective looks very much like an income retirement, it's very much like a pension, but from the employer, from the sponsor's perspective, cannot by definition create a deficit. So it answers those two, it asks that, that sort of question, how do you provide, should answer this question, how do you provide a good retirement income for your employees without risking the challenges of deficits uh, that we have seen play DB schemes for many years. And the way it does this is by using uh, effectively pension increases as the balancing item. So you set up your scheme and you, you hope that you'll get the investment returns that will help you target potential inflationary pension increases. If you have really good returns, you can get higher increases. If you have really poor returns, you get lower increases. And perhaps see from some of the other models, actually, if you have extremely bad returns. You can get situations where the pensions themselves fall, and some sort of some of that experience in some other countries. But broadly speaking, those pen- and, and the models that we're seeing designed at the moment, and see the, the model that the, the Royal Mail has put forward for its scheme, those models say, look, within reason, good or, good or bad performance, and the pension increases are in there. And that, that's sort of the, the premise. Now, as you say, we've had the consultation from the government on, on the regulations. Those are the enabling regulations that allow the Royal Mail to have its scheme. And sort of touch wood, that scheme will now emerge over the next year. And what is great about that from the industry's perspective is that all the other sponsors who are interested in CDC can actually observe 
that process going ahead. There's a regulatory process, so it's not instantly happen. But hopefully what we'll see with a good following wind is, is that scheme emerge. And then we've gone through this sort of consultation process at the moment. And the aim of that is to try and say, OK, if we want more schemes to emerge, if we want other employers to put things forward, what might we need to change or what, or what extra flexibility might we need to put in place to encourage other sponsors to go that route as well? And key factors that we're thinking about here are things like what if you want to have a slightly different benefit structure? What if you want to use the scheme for auto enrolment as well as, as, well as providing a higher level of, of pensioning pensions, for example? Or what might you want to do if you're worried about sort of intergenerational, intergenerational concerns? Might you have age-related elements to it? All things are, aren't currently possible, but hopefully will be possible going forwards. And then, of course, the longer-term uh, prospect of CDC, which would be really good if it does take off, is what happens when you can broaden to wider multi-employer schemes, potentially industry-wide schemes. That's not something that's really possible as of today. But what will hopefully happen is over the next year or so, there'll be another round of, of regulation to enable more, more companies to get involved and hopefully eventually get to those broader schemes. Tim, do you want to come, to come in here? People in favour of CDC will hope that, that this thing does take off. Scale is is important, but, but not imminently or immediately achievable. Is there any indication as to how popular this, in fact, will be? We obviously, we know about Royal Mail, but I, I think those are the, that's the only one that I'm certainly aware of. Is it a case of people sort of waiting, or everyone sort of waiting in the wings to see how it pans out for the, the, the first sort of guinea pig, and then, then they might or might not jump in? Or are there more developments that we can expect which would encourage further CDC growth? Well, the legislation as, as it exists only really allows uh, a limited number of employers to consider providing CDC uh, because of the sheer size. So um, we would need to look at the very largest private sector employers and say, would it actually suit them to have this type of pension scheme? So uh, over the short term, um, the number of organisations for whom this would be a viable option anyway is actually quite limited. Uh, What we would need to be looking at now is maybe some of the very larger retail uh, employers, um, supermarkets, for example, somebody on that side kind of scale would they be interested in launching a cdc scheme another point to be made is that the royal mail scheme is probably atypical in terms of design in terms of what other employers might want to do so there would have to be sufficient flexibility for other design issues to to cope i mean what royal mail wanted essentially was a db scheme without guarantees uh, I don't imagine that anybody else wanting to go down the CDC route want anything you know, that's necessarily designed in that way. It's also worth noting, uh, some of the point, pick up one of the points that Stephen was making, is that the ACA has this morning put out a press release calling for um, scope to have age-related contributions with CDC. So there's still a lot of debate going on within the industry as to um, how this might work most effectively. So the short answer to your question, TLDR, is that there probably are other employers looking at it, but I don't imagine they'll want to do something exactly like what uh, Royal Mail has done. Yeah, and obviously we've spoken about it from, from an employer's perspective and some of the benefits that, that employers might be looking for. From a member's perspective, Stephen, obviously CDC does function in quite a, a different way, doesn't it, which will leave a sort of an, an understanding gap as and when it does first come in. Obviously, anyone, Someone could point out that actually members' understanding of pensions in general isn't that good, but understanding of CDC in particular is is not great. 
and then the pensions can go down as well as up in a CDC scheme, can't they? Has enough been attention been focused on member say engagement and awareness at Royal Mail, for instance, which is the test case? Are, are their members fully aware of the possibilities? Uh, no, see, I, I, I can't speak for precisely what they will have done, but my, certainly my understanding from the industry consultations or the industry forums that I, I present is, yeah, quite a lot of attention frankly has gone into that point. And it has been well established from other countries that an awful, an awful lot of attention is needed there. But it's one thing to write people letters it's another thing for people to actually properly understand because as, as you as you say the big risk with these schemes is actually what does happen in those real downside scenarios you know, by their very nature the schemes are looking for significant investment return, investment returns that the models that are out there at the moment are, are very heavily equity and, and, and sort of risk investment strategies or on risk investment strategies that are designed to target the kinds of best estimate returns that enable the schemes to provide pensions at lower cost than DB and that, that's essentially the stardust that makes them cheaper than DB. They are able to invest in growth assets um, when DB to an extent are nowhere, nowhere near as able to do at this point. If those returns don't come through then you could get scenarios where the pension increases will not be quite so big and ultimately pensions themselves can go down. Now that needs to be spelt out abundantly clear from the very start. But then it's not all downside because one of the uh, and I, one of the points I quite like to make about CDC is even if you hated a particular scheme design, if you have an employer that's willing to put say 20% of salary into a CDC scheme compared to maybe 10% for an average defined contribution scheme and maybe compared to the original 30% plus that was going into a DB scheme, even if you hated the scheme design and even if you had bad performance, frankly, that's still a lot more money going into pensions than would be the case in the kind of traditional DC schemes that are going forward. So I think they have an awful lot of a lot of resilience to them before you even get down to sort of comparing to typical DC outcomes. And I think that's just a function of the amount of money employers we hope will be willing to put in there. And that's because they're not afraid of deficits emerging. So I think that's that's the good story. But you're right, the communications challenge is definitely there and needs to be paid attention to. Fantastic. Well, in which case, we'll move on from the, the exciting and the new to exciting possibilities with something which is older. I mean, poor old DB schemes uh, have become a bit like uh, everyone's least favourite grandparent. They are somehow still there. Uh, but they are clinging to sort of strictures and rigidity of a generation no, no, no one any longer has very much use for, though they do still have money, which is notable and important. But need that be the case? LCP has argued we don't necessarily have to flee from DB to attain a bit more flexibility in life and in pensions. There are options, pensions increase exchanges, as mentioned at the top, bridging arrangements if scheme rules allow, uh, that might be of use to members if only members were aware of and understood them. It's an LCP report, so Stephen, as LCP's representative, I'll come to you. <laughs> How available are these measures? Because, I mean, I, I know the qualifier with, say, bridging pensions is that the scheme rules have to allow it, don't they? Some schemes have been doing this for years, but an awful, an awful lot of schemes, you know, members obviously have to write to transfer value, but not a lot else is out there. And, and I guess what we've seen over the past few years is people have taken advantage of the pensions freedoms. We've seen evidence that actually quite a lot of people taken cash out of schemes have just put them into bank accounts essentially not necessarily got the greatest investment returns now in actual fact in this day and age from a resilience perspective actually there's possibly some very strong arguments for having a bunch of cash in, in, in a bank account but in terms of raw return and actually getting the best best outcomes over the longer term we think there are potentially some better options out there now 
key for members is to make sure that as they go through the app retirement decision, they're actually doing the best thing for them, thinking about how much cash are they going to need in the early years of retirement, as they go through retirement and later retirement, and making sure they're putting in place plans to utilise that cash as efficiently as possible. Things like pension increase exchanges are really good in terms of helping people perhaps in the years immediately after retirement to have when, when, when they've got the spending capacity and hopefully they'll be, you know, post pandemic, we'll get, slightly get back to normal retirement patterns where people actually probably in those early years are spending a bit more money in those early years of retirement and actually do enable people to match their earnings through pensions to their, to their spending needs. And without the need to put large amounts of large amounts of money into essentially bank accounts, which they then have to have the responsibility to manage, which in early years is fine, but as they progress can get more difficult in order to make sure they have the best outcomes. Now, increasingly schemes are putting in place a whole raft of additional support for members in that at retirement process, things like IFA advice at retirement, but also putting in place structures such as pension increase exchange, flexible retirement options that make sure that people going through that decision are able to to get the best options for them. So it's not necessarily about transferring money out to put a money bank account so that you can then look at it and, and manage it yourself. That would be the right choice for some people. But for others, there are plenty of options out there. We talked about pension increase exchange, bridging pensions to bridge the gap until uh, between normal retirement age and state pension age. Again, really good ways to make sure that people have the cash when they need it and all the trustees are looking at this thinking how can we help our members because they're realizing that actually over the next sort of five or ten years there is an absolute raft of people going through retirement and this is going to be the, the sort of key period it was peak retirements for most of for most mature schemes at this point tim do you want do you want to come in on this one Obviously, yeah. uh, the options being there is one thing. Members knowing how to make use of them is another. Uh, perhaps members are slightly more aware of their options for transferring or moving into a, a DC arrangement, with, which already has the flexibility built in that they know about, that then they are aware of these potential avenues in, in their DB schemes. Is this something that, that as, as Stephen says, we, we will see becoming more important as time goes on? Is more work? Is enough work being done to make people aware of the, the options that they have? Clearly, this is going to vary from scheme to scheme in terms of what the scheme rules will allow. But it's something that does have to be communicated particularly effectively. There is absolutely no substitute for getting good, tailored, bespoke advice from a qualified advisor. So it's important that uh, members do understand exactly what their options are and what is going to, crucially, what is going to suit them best. One of the other drivers that we need to think about is the NMPA moving up to 57 shortly. So are we going to see um, a group of people looking to retire at age 55 where they still have the opportunity to? So is this uh, something that we need to, that schemes need to promote to their members perhaps a little more effectively than they, or extensively than they have done in the past? But uh, I think that the crucial thing is that whatever members choose to do, there is no substitute for good quality advice to make before making a life-changing and irreversible decision. There is no substitute for good independent advice, though I am obliged to point out subscriptions to Pensions Expert are free. So. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I think that brings us nicely to the, the close of the principal part of the programme. Now, there is, of course, sometimes a pensions angle, though we call it always a pensions angle. Do either of you have anything good, funny, amusing, vaguely entertaining or improbable that you've spotted in the last couple of weeks? It's not an essential part of the programme. Yes, this year marks the 100th anniversary of EET tax relief. August 1921, when it first uh, happened. So uh, we've had a century of uh, our current pensions tax regime, or 
the EET tax regime. So uh, I think that's something that's worth having a cake for. Okay, cake for EET. I'll get one baked now. A hundred years. Were, were people complaining about it a hundred years ago? Do you know in the way that they're complaining about pension taxation now? Didn't have any tax um, relief back then, I and mean, this was uh, what gave rise to what is now the PLSA. Where there the, was this campaign by uh, a number of uh, larger pension schemes to get tax relief, pointing out the benefits of it. And once they won their campaign, they banded together to form what we now know as the PLSA. I think. Um, Tax relief has formed the basis of what has been an extremely successful tax or pension system in the UK. There has been rumblings about the government looking at alternatives to EET. I think it's probably worth celebrating the fact that this is a system that's worked extremely well for 100 years. I don't think it's necessarily a good idea that we should consider moving away from it lightly. There are enough broken things not to add to the workload by changing what isn't broken. Excellent. Well, that brings us to the close of the programme, in which case, thank you to Stephen and to Tim very much for joining us. Thank you to our listeners for being with us. As ever, we will be back in two weeks' time, and we hope to see you then. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.